Welcome to this Extra Point Podcast, and this time we are going to take a look at our overview to the Epistle of James. And I am Chris. Timor Nesbitt. I'm Todd. And I'm Carlos. And we are starting a new series that, uh, Todd, you're calling uh, Shoe Leather Theology. How did you come up with that, that title? Well, James is a book that focuses on action, and uh, yet embedded in it is a lot of theology that perhaps sometimes gets overlooked. And I just want to make sure our people understand that um, true belief always results in true behavior and, and right action. So we're going to look at how those complement each other and, and talk about living out our theology. And I think the purpose of these podcasts is to really um, maybe go into a little more depth than what we would be able to during a, a regular sermon. And so as we are looking at uh, James and the, the overview of it, um, this will help to kind of set the stage and, and uh, answer maybe a lot of the questions that will come up about the background of James and who is this author and when it was written and how does that impact. So as we get started, I think that's always a, a really good place to begin is who wrote the book of James? Wasn't it Jacob? Well, <laughs> uh, boy, you start right with the open the Just can of worms right there. Why would you say that? Well, uh, this is something you and Carlos have a little more knowledge on, and I thought it was interesting you brought it out weeks ago in just some of our discussion. But in every other Bible, this is seen as or referred to as the book of Jacob, except the King James translation. Is that correct? Well, English translation. Excuse yeah. me, except the English translation. Okay, so. So, for example, Tamor, you read from a, a Russian Bible, and how is this book titled in the Russian Bible? Yeah, in in Russian Bible, it titles. Uh, Jacob instead James. And you said even within, say, the context of Acts, where it's referring to James, it refers to him as Jacob. Yes. So like also in Matthew uh, 13, verse uh, 55, where they ask, "Who's where's your mother and where's uh, the sons? He's the brothers of Yaakov. In, mm-hmm. And so in Acts, same way, in Acts 15, uh, Yaakov spoke. Which makes sense because a, a lot of the... Uh, um, the New Testament authors had Hebrew names. I mean, we know, for example, um, Jude was most likely Judah in the original. What Carlos? Maybe some background context as to how we got from from Jacob to James in our English translation. Yeah, anytime you translate from one language to another, they're not always. Um similar letters and pronunciations and so you get what Tamor said originally in Hebrew Yaakov or Yaakov into the Greek transliteration of that or equivalent would be Iakobos and from there the Latin went to they added an M in there Iakomus and to where now when it got into the English pronunciation uh, more of a J Germanic rather than E like an I and then they would they drop the B and it was just James or the O, so it's kind of the the, the way that uh, the way language works. That's where we go: Yaakov, Yakobos, Yakomus to James in English. Although there's another theory that the reason why we use James instead of Jacob, and it goes back to the King James translation of of the uh, of the Bible in 1611, and the the belief there is that it's kind of a uh, tip of the hat to King James, to whom the Bible was dedicated to. I, th- I thought it was an interesting comment that, uh, you know, when you look at the, the English or British or, uh, you know, 
the kings of England over and queens over the time period, they're often identified by um, by eras. And so, for example, you have uh, when Queen Victoria, this was known as the Victorian area. When when we get to um, King James, which would have been you know around 1600, this period of time in English history was referred to as the Jacobin period, which I thought was kind of an interesting switch where we have King James, who's known for being the head of the Jacobin era, and yet Jacob in the New Testament is referred to as James. <laughs> That's interesting. I switch. That's interesting. So is it safe to say, guys, that the reason it's titled James, and as your question, Chris, the author is James, but his name is really Jacob, but the reason it's called James is because it's a breakdown in the transliteration of that name over time. Is that an okay way to phrase yeah, that? Yeah, I would say from Hebrew to Greek, then to Latin and into English. So I think, for example, in um, the when we refer to Jesus, his name was Yeshua in the in the Hebrew, and yet the Greek couldn't pronounce the Y as I understand it. Yeah, so it got it, it got translated Correct. into I in the Greek, mm-hmm. and over time, that gets transliterated into Jesus, which is how we've come to understand this person. But the original name would have been Yeshua. Yeshua or Jesus in Greek. But yeah, because no Y. Yeah. So yeah, there's another example of how names kind of change. But so, this shouldn't worry anyone. Oh, no. It's we the don't same. have some false epistle out there, correct? We have, we have names that have been carried through. We know who these people are, which really kind of brings up the next question, I think, is how do we know who this James is? Because the the New Testament refers to several men of James. Let me just kind of run down the list here. There was James, the son of Zebedee, and this would have been uh, one of Jesus's three disciples who were part of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Um, then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, and this, by the way, is, is the belief of the Catholics within the world that James, son of Alphaeus, is the author of James, and we'll explain that in a second. Then there was James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, was another James that was mentioned. And then there is James, who was the half-brother of the Lord. And uh, I think as we're looking at, at those two, we know it wasn't James, the son of Zebedee, because he was martyred very early. Um, James, the father of Judas, would have been very inconsequential as as far as the church was concerned and would have been highly unlikely to have had a role in, in producing something like this epistle. So that leaves us down to the son of Alphaeus and James, the half-brother of the Lord. Why do Catholics believe it could not have been James, the half-brother of the Lord? Well, more than likely, they're going to protect the perpetual virginity of Mary— and so they're not going to assume that there were any other children by Mary, which if you take that this James was written by the brother of Jesus, then that would eliminate that possibility. So Catholics— They're stuck with James, the son of Alphaeus. Catholics believe that that Mary is a perpetual virgin. She never had children with Joseph. She never—she is—what is, what do they refer to her? The mother of God, right? She's the, the mother of God, but she is all. She herself also was immaculately concepted. So just like Jesus, she was conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, she, they also they go so far as to say that she was without original sin, and as of the last few centuries, she has been named the co-redeemer along with Jesus. So and no, she was assumed as well, or and she ascended. was assumed, ascended or assumed into heaven, and she was co- uh, crowned the queen of heaven and things of that nature. So when we were going through our Christmas series and we looked at um, the wise men, the wise men in Matthew it tells us that when they saw the child, they worshipped him. How come they didn't worship Mary? Why, if she's all of these things, why did the wise men not worship Mary? This discussion took a sharp right turn, didn't it? (laughs) This is good. I think it's because of what we just uh, have to admit is that she wasn't the Christ child. She's not the queen of the king. She's a humble servant favored highly by the Lord. And that's a great thing. But she's not a co-redemptor, and um, she's not sinless. Yeah, two, two She things. calls the Lord her redeemer. Yeah, that's right. I was just going to say that, yeah, in her her uh, response to the uh, announcement that she's going to bear the Messiah, she calls God her Savior. If she did not have original sin, why would she need a Savior? Uh, Mark 6 talks about, um, you know, when they're questioning, Jesus is saying things. He's a Nazareth. These are the people whom he grew up with. They said, is this not the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? So again, another, and that's one quotation from the Gospels that shows that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And as I understand, that that word that is translated brother means brother. It can't be translated to mean cousin or close relative i think the catholics try to go around they that try back. to yeah they try to say and it is uh, sometimes uh, the brother can be used as spiritual brother like meaning the disciples sometimes it can mean um cousin but the context dictates how it's being used i believe it's in john's gospel john chapter 2 after the wedding at cana it distinguishes his disciples and his brothers so we can see that the term is being used as a physical brother not a spiritual brother um, and there's no mention of, uh, you know, actually, th- there is there is some indication that uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, may have been his cousins, but they're never spoken of as brothers. The same thing with John the Baptist. That's actually a cousin of Jesus, never refers to him as the brother of Jesus. So we're still back to the question is why, which James is this? We're down to two. And I think the motives of the Catholics would kind of bring into suspicion the fact that it is James, the son of Alphaeus. Which leaves us with James, the half-brother of the Lord. And I think there's a lot of historical evidence that that supports that um, beyond just what we've talked about here. I mean, this is, as we understand, the James that's referenced in, um, say, for example, Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. So this would have been the James who would have been the elder of the Jerusalem church. Is that correct? Yes. And as far as we can understand, um, James was not a believer during Jesus's earthly ministry. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's one of those, you know, one of those mentions in the Gospels of that they were not, you know, believing in him. Um James would be accounted among them, along with Jude. Um, but anyway, at some point, they did come to faith. Maybe, uh, Tamor, can you speak to how James 
Jesus' brother came to faith, kind of in. Well, the, I think the only thing is we see in First Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians fifteen, where uh, Apostle Paul talks about that uh, Christ did reveal after he rose again from the dead uh, to James, his brother, and so um, I think maybe then uh, James saw him, risen Christ, and put his trust in him. Yeah, so he probably would have seen him crucified, and then all of a sudden he sees him alive again. And then the Lord appears to him again. So was James an apostle? That's another question that I think is an interesting question. Was was James an apostle? He did see the Lord after the resurrection. One of the things that in reading and preparing for this introduction that um, I, I thought was relevant and very interesting is that uh, the, the commentator was identifying essentially two categories of, of apostles within the New Testament— there was the original 12 that spent the three years with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Originally called disciples. Just originally called disciples. Uh, one of them, Judas, would have fallen away, but then was replaced immediately um, as we turn the pages into the book of Acts. And you remember they, they drew lots, and I think it was uh, Matthias. Yeah. I'm always mispronouncing names. Just say <laughs> it strong. Yes. <laughs> Matthias. So, so, so Matt replaced um, Matt. There Matt, we go. There we go. <laughs> Matt replaced Judas. Matt replaced Judas, um, and that is the original twelve. So the the consensus would have been Matthias would have been with Jesus throughout that earthly time of ministry. Then we see other apostles who were mentioned. For example, the apostle Paul, um, Barnabas, I believe, is referred to as an apostle. James is referred to as an apostle. These would have been men that would have been contemporary to Jesus, but maybe didn't spend that that three-year period of time with him, but did see and, um, and witness the resurrected Christ. So those seem to be the two categories that, that we fall into. So by that, based on 1 Corinthians, James would be considered an apostle. Is that correct? Yeah, Paul will call him that in Galatians chapter 1. He says, uh, after he remained in you know, after three years, he goes up to Jerusalem. He meets with Peter, remained with him 15 days, saw no other apostles. Then he says, except James. He calls him mm-hmm. an apostle. Uh, the book of Acts will also name Barnabas as an apostle. And then obviously the vision of Jesus to Paul, he is an apostle. So I think it's safe to say, I mean, because you earlier in the book of Acts, the criteria was you had to have been with Jesus from the baptism of John. You had to have seen him resurrected and been among them. James... Barnabas and Paul don't meet that criteria, but it's pretty clear, at least with James and and Paul, that Christ directly appointed them. And then Luke, who is recording the Acts of the Apostles and names Barnabas an apostle, that's a pretty good uh, indication that the Lord called him to be one as well. James had a, a title that he was known as during his lifetime, and that was James the Just. What does that probably tell us about James the man, the, the, the person behind the, the letter? Well, I, I personally, I think it harkens back to what we've been learning in, in the Gospels about Joseph, the, the, the stepfather of Jesus. Um, it says that he was a lawful man, one who followed the law of Moses. I think he ingrained that into his sons. James would have been his full son, along with Judas and Joseph and the other brothers. And so I think James was an Old Testament saint who was faithful to the Lord according to the law of Moses. And I think he was blameless in that sense. 
That's I think that's what it mm-hmm. is. And I think that speaks then to the whole tenor of the book, which some folks perhaps I don't want to say misinterpret, but they perhaps read more into it than they should. They keep thinking James is trying to teach justification by those kinds of works when maybe all he's saying well not maybe in my opinion what he's saying is a true understanding of 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 god's design for us will lead to actions that are just that are right that are lawful that they show what you believe does that make sense and so that kind of is borne out in how james writes i think a a great commentary on the book of james is acts 15 where we really get to see um the heart of james because as, as just to recap this, the Jerusalem Council was essentially brought together with one question in mind: Do Christians have to follow the Jewish law in order to be saved? And there was a, a group of of Christians who were who were arguing that Christianity was just an extension of the law; that you still needed to be circumcised, you still needed to follow the the dietary customs and everything that was prescribed by the law. And so this was brought to the council, and James wrote a letter that is recorded for us in Acts 15, in which he basically put that to rest. And in that letter, we see that James has a what I would call a personal fond affection for the law, in other words, the traditions of it. But he's very clear that those things have nothing to do with our salvation, that they shouldn't be the governing factors in determining our salvation. And he says, you know what, here's some areas that I would steer clear from, sexual immorality, eating food that's been offered to idols. But he doesn't get into the you know, the, the circumcision and, and all of those things that are um, some were demanding were, were to be required of Christians. And this is the James then. He's very sensitive to the law. He's a Jew. He's the one that we think wrote this epistle, this letter, right? Correct. It makes sense then why in verse 1, his letter is addressed to 12 tribes in the dispersion. It's these Jewish brothers and sisters of his that because of the persecution have been scattered. He's concerned for them. He has compassion for them. And he, he shepherded them in Jerusalem, and he's writing now to these ones about issues that perhaps could get lost in translation, if I can say it that way, about mm-hmm. how they're acting and how they're behaving. Another factor that we probably need to enter in at this point is is the time of the writing. Um, most commentators see the epistle of James have been written somewhere around 45 to 48 AD. This would have placed it at close to the front, if not the first New Testament uh, writing that was written after the resurrection of Jesus. How, how does that flavor maybe some of the things that we read in the book of James in comparison to other New Testament epistles. Well, if he's writing as one of the first New Testament books, he's probably going to write it with this bent towards Judaism, if I can say it that way, and maybe some of the lawful aspects, the following through on all the regulations. Um, Paul would come later, um, and I don't want to say bring clarity, but perhaps bring another side of the coin, shall we say? Uh, but if it's early like that, it would make sense when Judaism is coming in, uh, and Christianity is coming on the scene, it would make sense that this book would have a lot of those flavors about, that's let's not to, forget, yeah. you know, to live a certain way. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It has a Jewish flavor. I mean, a lot of we often forget that the first Christians were Jews. And and so that, you know, that early date, exactly what, what Todd had said. Um, and, you know, 
we have the apostles' teaching that they were um, committed to the early church, and it would have included some of the things that James writes about. But when when Jesus does call, so the book was probably lit, written after the council in Acts 15, but before probably um, what we think to be Paul's first epistle, either First Thessalonians or maybe even First Corinthians, but probably First Thessalonians. Um, Paul just adds to that and gives some more clarity that doesn't contradict what James says. It actually coincides with it. Um, but that was a big question in the early church. Hey, okay, this is how Jews follow Jesus. Hey, what does that look like for Gentiles? And that's when Paul gives more clarification, but not contradiction. I wonder sometimes, uh, this would be a light analogy, but we've got Carlos of a Mexican background, Tamor here of uh, Central Asia background, Chris now with English. And I wonder how when we bring the gospel to bear upon our cultures, how hard it would be for us to speak to three or four different types of churches with different races of Christians, and how would we filter through all that and say, here's what really matters? I suspect all of us would bring to bear things that we felt were important, but we knew weren't essential. Mm-hmm. So I really have a lot of respect for those guys in Acts 15. That would be a hard job to have Paul and James and all these guys together trying to figure out what is essential when you have a lot of passion for maybe how you were raised. That'd be hard. And I, I think personally you see that tension within their their own um, writings. I mean, you you can tell that Paul had a fond affection for the traditions of of his his culture and the traditions of of the Jewish religious practices and yet he kept it in balance. He knew that those were not essential and yet we see further on in Acts where he took a, a Nazarite vow and he he presented that as um an illustration of how he was I think reaching out in a handshake of good of towards uh the jews of basically saying you know i am still one of you but it doesn't impact my position in christ or my my worship of god is it similar to uh to the gospels like a gospel been written differently as well like matthew was matthew was written to the jew kind of audience and mark was more like for romans uh, and believers and a look for more like he uses a lot of like uh, parables and for the Greeks and and um, John probably like Gentiles and just just different audience that those gospel as well wrote. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, different audiences. Yeah, absolutely. So it's sim- it can be similar, similar here. Yeah, going I think on. so. So talking about the audience, Todd, you kind of just alluded to this a bit ago about uh, the Jews in dispersion. Uh, Talk a little bit about the audience that that James is is writing to at this point. What was it like to be a Jewish Christian, probably within Jerusalem, Judea, perhaps Samaria at this point? Well, let's go back to what you said earlier with James, the son of Zebedee. I mean, he was martyred in the book of Acts. That would be the height of of the danger that existed in that culture. Not everyone was martyred. Uh, we know in Acts 8, though, at some point, that kind of persecution filtered down to where everyone in the Church of Jerusalem fled except for the apostles, which seems to me to say the leaders knew that for them, for that church to survive, it needed leadership, and the shepherds weren't going to abandon the flock. So they stayed where it was most dangerous, and the, God used that persecution to send the flock out, ultimately resulting in more churches planted. But I think 
the spectrum of persecution started with being arrested. We saw that in Acts up to being martyred. That was the landscape going on for these Jews uh, that James is writing to. So when he's talking about trials, he's talking about real trials, not the fact that my car didn't start this morning or my camel threw a shoe. I mean, <laughs> he's talking about life and death type of trials. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, very much so. I think, uh, you know, the the dispersion or diaspora is what it's also called, uh, would have been earlier to, uh, way to refer to the Jews that had been spread throughout the known world be- after the conquest of first Assyria and Babylon. But I think James uses that term to refer to those persecuted Christians, like Todd was saying. And yeah, real life, very recent uh, life-threatening persecution that they had endured. Basically the target of, of both the Romans and the, the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership, yeah. So when you read the book of Acts, you're kind of getting the context, the, the background to what James is writing about here. As we look into um, some of the comments we've made about the timing and everything, one of the things that's brought up is that uh, James and the Apostle Paul are in contradiction to each other. And, and the verses that that people point to are, are James 2.24, which says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then in Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So are they in opposition to each other? Is, is Paul taking something that James has taught and reversing it? How, how do you explain those two verses? Well, throw this to more. You're a fan of Martin Luther, right? You love the Reformers, and he wasn't a fan of James, was he? <laughs> Take a shot at this. Well, that's... Uh, <laughs> well, I think uh, I, I don't think that uh, Paul is contradicting James. I think he actually is supporting James, and uh, I think it depends how you understand that. Um, but I think we are saved by faith alone, uh, but uh, faith is uh, a root, uh, works are the fruit. And so I think that's what James is doing here. Uh, he's kind of saying, if you say that you have faith, show me by what your works. And so I think they don't contradict. And one of the ways we can show that even by James' own writings is that he says in chapter 1 that God brought us forth of his own will. That's James chapter 1, verse 18. And um, I don't think a man who wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would turn around later and say, by the way, we're, uh, you know, justified by our works. He's clearly understanding the right theology. It is God who saves wholly. And yet I think when he says man is justified by works, what he's in the context, Carl's been earlier, context determines a lot of this. So he's saying, hey, a man is vindicated. His faith is shown. It's, It's proven to be true by your works that God has brought you forth because you're showing uh, by your actions that your belief is is grounded. Yeah, and I think maybe a, a good way to say that is um, we, as sinners before a holy God, are made right, justified by our faith. That's how we receive that justification because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. I think maybe a, a good way to say it, though, is that our faith is justified or proven to be right by our works. In other words, proven to be genuine faith. Both writers use Abraham as an example. 
And when you go back and, and, and read in the book of Genesis chapter 15, where God gives the promise to Abraham to make of him a great nation and bless him and bless all the families of the earth through him, the Lord says, gives him the promise, and then it says, and Abraham believed God, and God accounted it to him as righteousness. But one of the things that you read through the story of Abraham is that he acted on what he believed. He didn't just believe something. He's like, yeah, I believe that's true, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Everything we see about Abraham, God calls him, okay, I believe you're the true God, I'll follow. Hey, go and take your son, the one you love, your only son, take him up to the hill, sacrifice him to me. The Lord commanded him, and he believed in God, and he acted on that belief. So maybe that's a good way to put it. Our faith is justified by our works, and maybe that's a good way Mm. to understand James. I wonder sometimes if trying to split these, if, you know, we, uh, I'm not sure this is how to say this well, but you ask someone, a little baby, let's say, like, is the heart keeping this baby alive or the lungs? Mm -hmm. You take out either one, you got a dead baby. Yep. And that's not a good thing. The truth is, both of these matter, not like you said, Carlos, not that one saves us, but, man, they both just are instrumental and essential. And I think James is really bringing that to, to bear here in a good way. In fact, one of the things, as I studied this several months ago and just preparing for the series and bringing it to you guys, was the amount of theology in the book that perhaps for most of my life I overlooked. I considered it a kind of a to-do book. But under underneath all of these action points is a very strong theology about who God is, what he's done, uh, how we relate to him in prayer. I mean, it's just amazing the amount of theology that perhaps I at least have missed for a number of years. So let me ask the question that we're kind of talking about it, and maybe we're just assuming people know this. So why is it a problem to say that our works are what make us right before God? I mean, what's what's the issue? What's Why is that a problem? Well, I think... That's a that's a difficulty that has grown more and more troublesome for a lot of Americans because we we look at morality as the sign of of a good person and a good person is a righteous person. You know, we equate those two and and we know that a person can live their entire life as a good moral person without any knowledge or saving faith of Jesus Christ. And as we are um being thrust into a much more pluralistic society within our own culture, I think it's clear that we have to we have to be sure we all understand that any good in us is purely evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, there is nothing good in us. We are apart from Christ. We are dead, and so I think the danger in, in today's world is is to point to good works, to point to the good person, to point to the moral person, and say. See, they're they're believers. They're they are they're good with God. They're righteous, and that is not the mark that God is looking for. Yeah, and, and you know to think, and maybe you can speak a little bit to this tomorrow. I mean, when a person says that they can be good enough uh, before God, what what are they essentially doing with the character of God? Well, they, I think they misunderstand who God is. Uh, I think if you lacking understanding of his holiness, uh, and uh, like David says in Psalm 16, you know, apart from you, Lord, there's nothing good in me. And so, in other words, I'm nothing without you. And so there's have to be a connection that you have to recognize that uh, the God's holiness and your sinfulness. And, and I think that's what people become so proud. They think I'm, 
I'm, I have a good works. I go church. I do this and that, and I'm I'm going to heaven. And I think that's because uh, they misunderstand who God is and how uh, he takes sin so seriously, and we don't. Yeah, it's almost to bring God down, like, oh, I can be good enough for this God. And really, it's offensive to him, because when we look at what he had to, or what he sent his son to go through, it's like saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm that good. I'm as good as Jesus. And that's offensive, because God is way holier than we can imagine. Often people seem to put God and man on the same ladder, the same spectrum, and just say, well, that's just a really good version and I'll get there one day. And that's Mormonism, you know, one-on-one mm-hmm. right there, right? Right. But the truth is, God is wholly different. We've told people this at First Family for years. God's wholly different, W-H-O-L-L-Y. But he's also wholly different, H-O-L-Y. He's not like us. So there's no way a man could see God by anything he's done because God's not like us. Does that make sense? It takes mm-hmm. someone, which is why the virgin birth, incarnation, or so matter, it takes God coming to man to rescue us. So no amount of works, like Chris was saying, no matter how good we think they are, could bridge this eternal gap we've got because God's not like us. And the cross of Christ proves that, that we are not good. Yeah. Because if, 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 if we are good, then why we need the cross? You know, that doesn't make sense. And so I think the cross of Christ proves that we, uh, Christ came to rescue sinners, not uh, good people. Well, we've been looking at the epistle of James, uh, Jacob, the epistle of Jacob, James, and as we uh, move into this series, we are going to um, be diving deeply into this. We'll be spending the, the, really the first six months of the year in the book of James as we work through this. Todd, you've, you've kind of interwoven some um, what you're calling Old Testament spotlights. Maybe explain a little bit how you see those working within the series and the purpose for those. At certain points in the book— um We'll take a break. We'll spotlight the actual subject or person of that text. For instance, we'll speak a few weeks on trials, and then uh, we'll talk about Job, who is probably have, has more actual content about trials devoted to him, to him, the book of Job, than anywhere in Scripture. We'll come to chapter 5 and Elijah on prayer. We'll go, we'll talk about prayer for a few weeks. So there's five places that we will kind of push pause, pull over, and we'll spotlight that topic or person to gain more insight into the subject James is bringing up. Is there anything any of you guys would like to add as we wrap up our discussion and overview of James? Anything that you find that is just really help us to understand the foundation of this book? I would encourage our people to do this or whoever's listening to this podcast. James has five chapters. If you read one chapter a day for the whole time we're in the series, I would be able to I think we can guarantee that you'll know the book better than ever, not just because of the teaching and the material we'll produce, but I think just the reading of the text and the Holy Spirit's illumination, if you read one chapter a day during the work week, take Saturday and Sunday off, go to your lighthouse, listen to, your, to the messages, but Monday through Friday, one chapter a day, can you imagine how, how well you would know this letter written from God to us about how to live out our theology? <laughs> That's great. That's a great piece of advice. And I would just add, too, as we look at this book, it really is God's perspective or maybe cure or view on what's known as easy believism. Mm. There's no such thing as a dead faith. It's not true faith. You can't say you believe in Jesus, don't live for him. And James is probably the perfect book to address that issue. Sounds like a whole nother podcast. We could get going on Lordship Salvation. Oh, man, let's let's just keep on going. We got three, four hours here. Chris loves right turns. (laughs) 
Well, thanks so much for listening and being a part of this podcast. And again, uh, you can find all the resources that will go along with this series at our website, ffclife.com. We encourage you to either participate via any of our streaming media or uh, recorded services, or of course, at either our Ankeny or Bondurant campuses. And those are available um, times and locations on our website, ffclife.com. So until next time, I'm Chris. Timor Nesbitt. I'm Todd. And I'm Carlos. Have a great week.